IB Talk, the global insurance industry podcast presented by Insurance Business. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest IB Talk, the global insurance industry podcast. And today we're proving just how global we are because it's been too long since we've traveled into the southern hemisphere for one of these chats. Not since last year, in fact, when we interviewed Anzif's Prue Wilsford and Financial Advice New Zealand's Katrina Shanks. So it's time we put that right. And there's nobody to be- better to do that with than my guest today, who is really leading the way for client service in the region. He is the CEO of Ausbrokers Coast to Coast, Dale Hansen. Dale, welcome to IB Talk. Thank you, Paul. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so for our audience overseas, Dale, uh, I just want to begin by asking you to tell us a little bit about what makes the Australian market unique. And, and do you see any similarities with other markets? Look, I'll, I'll do the point of different, the differences first. The Australian market is quite a bit different. I think globally for insurance, we're the sixth or the seventh largest market in the world, yet we're far from being the sixth or seventh largest country in the world. Uh, Australia, thankfully, from our perspective, does have a, a, a good appetite for risk, and has a good exposure to risk, but probably where we're different is just from the sheer range of catastrophes and insurable events that we see. We've, we've got floods, we've got cyclones, we've got bushfires, we have our share of crime events, we have as many cyber events as anybody else has. Um, loss of profits is still an issue here. We're seeing claims in the financial lines, directors and officers space, the same as the rest of the world is. Australia is a particularly litigious country. Um, we're one of the most litigious countries in the world. And indeed, I saw a report not long ago that said that a couple of Australian states were in the top five lit- most litigious states in the world. And of course, we've got hail and wind and we've got all different types of catastroph- catastrophes here where if we look at sort of at some of the other markets around the world, they don't have quite the same exposure to the variety of weather events that we have. They might have a lot of wind exposure, a lot of fire exposure, or they might have flood and not wind. Um, we sort of get it all here. We've you name it, we've got it. And liability claims, an insurance broker in Australia, you name it, we're dealing with it. And and certainly in my thirty-two years in the industry, there's not a lot that I haven't seen. Yeah, well, just talk to us, if, if you don't mind, about the, the bushfire element, because mm. I think probably for our for our global audience out there, they will all remember the, the pictures last year yeah. of, of basically Australia on fire. Uh, how was it to, to deal with that sort of firsthand? Well, I'll, I'll take everybody through that. So the fires actually first started in the Gold Coast hinterland, actually where my business is located, in September of 2019 as when we first saw the fires here and we saw our first bushfire claims coming in in the 48 hours, I think after about the 19th of September. Those fires on the Gold Coast burnt from September till basically about the end of January, pretty solidly. They, because of the weather event that we had, and it wasn't one contentious bushfire, but we had our own fires. And at that particular time in Australia, we were very heavily in drought, we had our summer came very early. The weather we would normally be seeing in December came in the September. So we got very hot very, very early and the whole eastern side of Australia did on top of a drought. And then what we were having on a lot of evenings are what they call dry thunderstorms where we would get thunder and lightning, but no rain. So the lightning was setting off bushfires right down the eastern seaboard. 
So basically, when we moved through September into October into November, Australia was basically ablaze at that stage from about central Queensland inland uh, down into Tasmania. But on the mainland, the fires spread right through Queensland, right through New South Wales, right through Victoria and even into South Australia. So we were looking at, at, a, at a bushfire of a scale we've never seen before. Australia's had bushfires since, since before the first fleet came, so they're nothing unusual. What was particularly unusual about this one and what was very difficult for Australia to deal with is, generally speaking, Victoria will have a bad bushfire season. So all the other states will pitch in and help. So firefighters will come from Queensland and firefighters will come from New South Wales and firefighters will come from South Australia. And likewise, New South Wales will have a bad bushfire. So again, again, those firefighters will come from all over Australia. We weren't able to do that because basically every state in Australia was dealing with its own catastrophe. So what that meant was that we weren't able to resource share. So we found that our firefighting capacity got reduced and hindered quite quickly and fatigue and stress became uh, a very, very major concern. And that's when we had firefighters coming in from all over the world, which I think is one, then's when we started to get a bit of global press and we had firefighters certainly coming from America and France and New Zealand and South Africa and various countries right through Asia. And that was purely just to deal with the, the fatigue factor, which as a country, we'd never dealt with on that scale before. As I said, states had, but when you had sort of five states of Australia ablaze and significantly uncontrollable fires, that did significant property damage. And the heat intensity that we had isn't something that we'd ever seen before either. And, and that the intensity that the fire burnt with for as long as it burnt it for, um, the, the, the really experienced bush firefighters with 30, 40 years experience has said that that was just unprecedented what they were dealing with. And certainly when in, in south, southern New South Wales and in northern Victoria, entire townships were basically decimated and disappeared off the map. So it wasn't just people lost their houses, they lost their corner store, they lost the doctor's surgery, they lost the pharmacy, they lost the community centre. Um, they lost the schools, they lost the churches, whole communities were absolutely devastated. Um, and this was after, in a lot of, they'd been cut off um, from, from general population for days on end. So they were either trapped in the town or you're trapped out of the town and can't get back in. So back when the fire comes under control or, and unfortunately more in this circumstance, it had burnt through and moved on, the infrastructure, there was no infrastructure left behind from which to start from. Again, that scale we'd not seen before. We, we've, we've, we've had townships, again, be destroyed before, but not on the scale that we'd seen this time. There were literally dozens of them where the community had absolutely nothing with which even to start again with. That, that, that's just unprecedented. I've been doing this 30 years. I remember the first, I can remember being involved in bushfires as a 12 year old in 1982. Uh, where I grew up in Sydney was particularly bushfire prone. So bushfires are nothing new to Australians, but this this is not like anything we'd ever seen before. I hope we don't ever see it again. I hope we've learnt the lessons from this, Paul. Yeah, and I guess from you know from from your perspective as a broker, I mean, I, I imagine are you still dealing with claims relating to this today? No, we've actually finalised all of our claims. Luckily, we only had around a dozen where we were. Uh, hit a, it, whilst the fire was very intense in the Gold Coast hinterland, we only had, um, and the claims we had were basically total losses. So, they, and, and <laughs> it's a horrible thing to say, but we basically had the claims first. So 
they responded to our claims first and they were dealt with quite quickly. But as that as that grew in that mountain, as the fires burnt through New South Wales and into Victoria and then into South Australia, again, the insurers were just inundated as well. They've all got their catastrophe plans, but this overran their catastrophe plans. And the assessing firms in Australia are generally very, very good at attending to these things because likewise, they're able to bring assessors in from other states, but all of a sudden, every state is dealing with the same situation. So again, when you come to the fatigue and the stress fracture, Factor. The, the, the resources were just not able to be to be shared. So whilst we've dealt with all our claims, I do know that there are, however, a number of claims still outstanding uh, in other states, and that's due to materials, physically getting the infrastructure rebuilt. Councils have been inundated with building and development applications. Uh, a lot of those rural communities have sort of been overrun by by the magnitude of what they're dealing with. Yeah, well, I want to sort of get into obviously, you know, servicing clients is, was a massive part of that. And I want to get into that with you um, a little bit later on. But uh, just for anybody not familiar um, with, with Ausbrokers, you're obviously you're focused on, on corporate insurance solutions, not just for Australians, but for, for, for multinational corporates as well. Um, and the firm has won best insurance brokerage in the country on, on numerous occasions. And indeed, you've um, been Australian insurance broker of the year a couple of times as well. Um, You've obviously had an amazing insurance career to date. Indeed, you were in 2020 part of insurance businesses Global 100. Um, how does it feel to be such a celebrated figure in the industry? I got someone said that to me the other day, and I got called an, in, an industry veteran. I didn't actually know who they were talking to, and uh, it was one of your counterparts said, "Well, how long have you been in the industry?" I said, "Well, 32 years." And he said, "What what part of that doesn't make you a veteran?" And I guess I'd never stopped to think about it. You just do what you do. Uh, and I've never sought the limelight out and indeed, believe me, I'm not, my team here is so wonderful that I'm not allowed to ever bask in them. I can might tell you they're very good at cutting me down the size pretty quickly and making sure that uh, I stay very much within my own shoes. But look, it is great because it means that I'm able to, to share with other people. It basically it sort of almost gives you that permission to share your story with other people. Uh, which I think that's really, really important because I quite enjoy that. Uh, our career is not seen as sort of sexy or you know sought after for people who are at school leavers or at university this is the best industry in the world you can do anything in this industry there's literally a place for anybody in every profession i don't know why people wouldn't choose it certainly everyone says they fell into insurance um i didn't pull this is what i wanted to do from being about 13 years old was to be an insurance broker yeah, well, well, tell us a little bit about that and your story, because uh, obviously you, you got started as, a, as an 18-year-old with uh, NRMA, is that right? Yeah, correct. And then so I tell, us, uh, tell us why you had that passion from being a 13-year-old to, to go into insurance. So I've actually got, I actually come from an insurance background within my, with, with my family that I only learned actually recently, going back two, three generations back, actually on my mum's side of the family, there was two people who were Lloyd's brokers back um, sort of earlier 20th century that I wasn't aware of. So it's sort of in the blood. Um, I had the great honour of being mentored by a couple of people when I was a teenager, people that were in the insurance industry and they were either general managers of insurance companies or they were brokers. They always loved what they did. They always spoke about it with passion and they always spoke to me about the, the profession with such, such conviction that it really resonated with me as a 13 year old. And they told me about 
the importance of the insurance industry and they said you know look banking's really really important but banking can't survive without insurance because if you can't insure for it you can't borrow for it so we really are absolutely vital and we are the link that makes the whole economy run and turn that's when i actually sat there to think about that it was like this is a really amazing this is a really amazing profession this and you can have a really amazing career in the insurance industry and then they would sit down and they would talk to me about the scope and the roles that there are available and you can be from an architect to an engineer to an actuary to a builder to a tiler to a solicitor to the insurance industry encompasses everything so they said to me no matter what 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 you want to pursue in your future there's actually a place for you within the insurance industry uh, and that really, as I said, I was very, like all of us are at that age, really impressionable. And that really, really resonated with me very strongly. And I decided that's the career that I wanted to pursue. And everything that I sort of did from that moment on was really earmarked to me heading into an insurance career. And then when I started with an insurance career, and I always sort of wanted to be a broker, but I knew I needed to do a number of roles before I, I had, would have the confidence, but more importantly, the skills to move into that so then all the roles that i did from then on in was all were all around one day becoming an insurance broker and one day owning my own insurance brokerage which was something that i i desperately wanted to achieve and i it's something i've really pursued with a lot of vigor well you obviously your you know your career progressed and you held roles across claims risk management broking and you eventually um opened a branch for for us brokers but um you also had a, a brain hemorrhage and a stroke obviously you survived I'm, I'm glad to be talking to you today but tell me how that experience impacted your career and i guess your life as well yeah this is this, this is such a uh, a lesson for everybody in this so in 2016, I was unfortunate enough to win the, the Stephen Bull Memorial Award. So first I was, I was Queensland Insurance Broker of the Year, then I won the Stephen Bull Memorial Award. So I'm the Australian Insurance Broker of the Year. Three weeks later, Anza folks is um, best insurance brokerage in the country. So we're riding that high at the back end of 2016. And then I'm at work on March 2017, and my head goes bang. Literally, something went bang in my head. Uh, I knew that wasn't right and raced myself off to hospital. And um, I woke up two days later in intensive care with them not knowing whether I was sort of how I was going to be impacted and affected, if so, which way, what that was going to look like. Um, that facilitated sort of 10 days in intensive care and another 10 days on the ward. And then I was at home recuperating for about three months. So here I am riding this absolutely massive high and then my whole world turned into complete turmoil, both personally, professionally, uh, I had to recover. I, I've had to learn a whole lot of new skill sets. Looking back on it now, it's one of the more important things that has happened to me. Uh, and I've taken nothing but positives out of the experience in the long run. Um, and I think the great lesson for everyone that's listening out there is, and I had a high flying career and I was loving what I was doing and I couldn't get enough of it. And it was more, 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 more. And I, started working 12 hours a day and 16 hours a day and then all weekend and basically my brain just com completely overrun. I think the analogy they gave me was you're a machine that was running without any maintenance and eventually it was going to break down. And I'd forgotten about all the things that were that were important. You need balance in your life and your career is important and your work's important. But you need your family and your friends and you need your other interests, which are things that I've re-engaged in and you need your other hobbies. You need to get that balance in your life Otherwise, what are you doing it for? And I'm, I'm, I'm sure there's people out there that are probably doing what I'm doing and thinking like me. 
and and my my words to their to them are make sure you have that balance in your life. I'd lost it. I'd lost perspective. I was just totally career focused and goal focused, and I got very task oriented, and I was ticking things off my list and driving the business forward, and all these great things were happening, but I was completely out of balance. So, and it's no wonder that I look back now in retrospect and I think backwards, and it's and and. I think what really hit home when I've got a lot of very good clients who are very, very dear friends of mine. And when my other director was, was phoning some of our larger clients just to explain what had happened, a number of them said, well, I've got to be honest with you, I'm not that surprised. He goes Mac 5 with his hair on fire. Does he ever stop? So it's not a good thing. It wasn't a good thing. I've learned the lesson from it. I make sure I keep learning the lesson from it. Um, it's given me a, I'm more empathetic I've got a much better sense of perspective. What I think is important in life has altered somewhat. Um, uh, I've reset my goals and I've reset the things that are important to me. Um, I'm actively, as we'll talk about later, mentoring some staff and my family is now all very important to me. I'm lucky that I've got a youngest daughter who wants to follow dad into the business, which is just great. And she made that decision when she was 15, um, but also, I'm very, very um, focused on putting back to the community, both the insurance community and the general community at large. And that's now really important to me to give back because I've been given so much and I've been given such a start. And I've got the amazing, most amazing group of people around me and friends and mentors in the industry, but I, it's, I now have to put back. So I, these are all the things that I've gained coming through this absolutely catastrophic experience. And then even knocked my business for six, but. I was lucky my crew here was so good they were able to pretty well run it and it didn't really miss a beat actually which was just amazing um but i'm now focused on on making sure that i i give back paul yeah well uh, speaking of, of giving back and obviously you know i think anybody who heard you speak earlier will, will see that you have a a real passion um for the industry but as, as we all know, there are a few issues that maybe from, from time to time sort of let down the image of, of the insurance industry. And, and one of those can be how we go about servicing clients. Um, of course, service is where brokers should thrive. But I think you feel, don't you, that maybe brokers are perhaps trying too hard to, to keep up with direct insurers on price. Is that right? Look, there's certainly that aspect. So it's a twofold, I think. I think we're focusing too hard on keeping, as you said, and keeping and and competing with insurers on price when they can't do what we can do. So why would we compete with them on a race to the bottom? But also technology, and I fear technology is particularly pushing the younger people and guiding the younger people in our industry down the commoditization path. Um, it's get online and we can do it quicker and cheaper and easier. And all this technology is meaning that we can get hold of information so much faster and we can get quotes online and it's all about speed and but i think we've forgotten what our clients after and our clients want to know that the person that we're dealing with totally understands their business and i think if we're commoditizing a client i don't think that's achievable very few people actually take the time to sit down to a client and say so tell me about your business where did you come from how did you start where are you now where do you want to go to? What does your dream business look like? Talk to me about your supply chain. Talk to me about your, about your staff. Talk to me about your competitors. Talk to me about who your other customers are. When we're having those conversations with clients, 
they're telling us that that's not been had by the people that have had before or the people that brought in haven't asked those questions. So if we're not asking those questions, I don't see how a client can consider us as a trusted professional. And if we're going to be a trusted professional, then we've got to go down that path. That at this stage has got nothing to do with commoditization and IT systems providing quotes and clients not, they're not interested in all that stuff actually. They really don't care. They just want to know that they can pick up the telephone to somebody who understands their business and says, I've got this problem and we're able to give them a proper and concise answer because we understand the perspective that the client is coming from. Now, direct insurer really doesn't have the ability to do that because they're only able to sell their own products and the products that they have, which for a lot of clients is not going to have the breadth and depth and strength that the client is looking for. They don't sort of have the time to really get engaged in, in, engage in the client with a client properly on all of their risk factors. So if we're going to do all those things, we need to be out face to face. We need to building relationship. We need to be servicing proficiently and meeting a client's needs and expectations to get into that trusted professional space that I don't see needs to necessarily just be owned by, by the finance and law profession. I believe there's more than a place for us in that space, but we've got to go in there and we've got to take it. But unfortunately, in this digital world and the world of 2021, everyone's throwing us ways where we can do things faster and easier and cheaper. And like a lot of insurers are not wanting us to engage with them in that way. And I think we're losing something there. For, for me, being a young 24, 5, 6, 7, 8-year-old coming through the broking profession, I had any number of underwriters, and I, as I sit and think about this, I can picture them and I can think about the conversations I had with them where they were educating me on a daily basis about the industry, about underwriting, about claims, about policy wordings, about terms and conditions. Paul, I just get concerned we're losing that and we're not doing that anymore because insurers are wanting to just do everything on electronic platforms. Mm-hmm. And so to be fair to the young ones coming through, they're not getting the exposure that we had. I mean, I'm 50 now, so I go back to, to when I was 25 years ago. We had that exposure to those people and they educated us and they taught us and they very much, the good ones, sought to bring us up in their image. And, I know a lot of people in my age and older go back to those days and we really did learn properly. And to be fair to the younger ones coming through, I just don't think a lot of them are having the exposure to that. And but I think... Sorry, sorry to interrupt you, Dale, but there's a little bit of a balance to be struck here, though, isn't there? Because yes, you, know, there is. you, you mentioned that you know that all these sort of tech platforms and so on. I mean, the customer themselves are very often just looking for yes. the, the cheapest deal because that's yes. how things are presented to them. So how do brokers address that aspect? So once we've gone through sort of the, t- the task that I'll, the, 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 the order of, of balance that I was talking about, and once we're engaging or having a relationship with the client, the clients often, and they look at a broker and they think what our job actually is, and this is the problem with the title. So they think of the word broker and they go, oh, you go to the market and you get the six cheap, cheapest quotes for me. Well, that's actually not what we do. When we actually properly understand their business, what we're doing is we're matching a policy wording and we're matching an insurer and a set of two, set of terms and conditions that best meet their need. So I think that's actually the job of a broker because it doesn't matter whether you pay $1,000 for a policy or $10. If it doesn't pay your claim, you've been ripped off. And I think with a lot of what, what we're competing against in that direct space, 
The clients don't know what the policies do and don't do. They don't read the 86 page PDS. They don't know what endorsements they should ask for. They don't necessarily know what insurer's appetite for that particular risk is, or indeed what their expertise in this area is and this proficiency. And all insurers have different sets of expertise and they're better at different things. Now as brokers, that's what we do on a daily basis. We know those things. So a client doesn't. So it's all part of with the client. We, and, the, and as part of the whole process of getting to know their business as part of the rec recommendations that we make is making a client aware of all the work that we've done foremost, what our recommendations are and why. They are, they are not going to get that off an electronic platform or off our artificial intelligence system. They're not geared to do that. And that's why if the people still do this job well, there's still a role for us. And I believe there'll always be a role for us but that's what we need to do. So in terms of, of kind of maybe changing the, the broker image to, to being seen as, as trusted professionals, do you think it would, it would be important and, and beneficial um, if brokers you know, undertake qualifications, gain certain certifications, or does that not really matter to the customer? Oh, I don't think it matters to the customer, but I think it matters to us and gives us a better understanding of how we deal with the customer. I'm still sort of puzzled that as, and, and our diploma is a great thing to have and the, and the advanced diploma is there. But as I was taught as a very young fella, um, your diploma is now a license to learn. Mm -hmm. And that's what it is. You've now got a license to learn. And uh, I'm involved with the edu education committee with an Ausbrokers and we're working very hard towards, okay, so a diploma now, to, now in the future needs to be the absolute base level of education that you need within the industry, but where to from here? Uh, and there needs to be, in my view, a better pathway into tertiary studies than there is at the moment. Yes, you still need the real life experience. Yes, you still need the day-to-day -day experience that you get from doing the job. But we were almost doing it better 25 years ago, Paul, than we are now. And I look at the people who were mentoring me who were older than me, and I look at the education that they did, and a lot of them did, at that time, postgraduate studies that were available in various independent arms of uh, the insurance piece, whether it be risk management or actuarial studies or um, type of engineering, surveying. And, and we've lost that piece and we haven't put a holistic program together that at the moment, I think on its own is going to attract the best young talent that is out there in the networks. If we're out there and we're pitching for an 18 year old coming out of school or we're pitching at going into tertiary studies. So we need to A, have a tertiary study program for them like county firms do, like law practices do. So almost an old-fashioned an, an old cadetship, or more importantly, I look at those university graduates coming out and it's having a, a career pathway for them that suits their needs and their interests and what, and what where they want to head. We've got all these weird and wonderful jobs, but we've not packaged the industry, I don't believe, up in a really proficient way and we've not dressed it up so it looks exciting and interesting and all the things that we know that it is to attract the really high caliber professionals in our, our industry we're still getting some but i think if we did that better we could get more and education is a really important piece in there like you, you know you, you, you go to university to be an accountant and you go to university to be a lawyer and you go to university to be a pharmacist well should there not be a, a tertiary form of education should there not be a specialization within commerce or economics um, for insurance and finance studies. I think they should be. I think I think we will head there 
and I think we'll head there fairly soon. And I think that will be a good thing. That's not to, to in any way, shape or form to take the importance away from experience and mentoring. They're all vital too. But I think this next century and certainly the next 20 years are, are going to demand that level of education. And as an insurance broker, you've you've basically got to be some sort of a bush lawyer and a bush, a bush accountant. You've got to be a risk manager. You've got to understand engineering and building and, and um, assessing studies. And we sort of got to be a bit of a jack of all trades. And um, I'd like to see us have a better formal structure. And if we were to put something together for, let's just say for insurance broking, where you would do some accountancy studies and you would do some legal studies and you would do some basic surveying and you do risk management and you could package sort of your 22 or your 24 unit studies around. There's nothing like that at the moment in, in, in any undergraduate qualification that I can see and I'm sort of doing that work as part of uh, Osbroker's Education Committee. So I would like us to see us put something together uh, in that sphere. Yeah, no, I, I think that's, that, that's that's great advice. I'm, I'm very conscious that we're running a little bit short of, of, sure. of time, Dale, and I just want to, to, to flip over to the, the, the sort of the personal side, if you want, because, you know, you mentioned earlier about having uh, two teenage daughters, one of whom I think you said 15 and, and, and is very interested in... Yeah, in she's, she's, she's 17 now and she wants to uh, put that out of a job, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, that's really been an inspiration for you, hasn't it? To, yes, it to has. Have, have two daughters and then you know you've sort of gone on to to, to mentor young women um, a little bit more widely in the industry is that right i have and and, and i've quite um maybe politically incorrectly said in the past that i think women make better brokers than men but i actually think that they do my experience has been would would reinforce that and i've got two young brokers here that i'm mentoring that um i would very happily have looking after my business so, so why is that? Why, why do you think that women make better brokers than men? I think they're focused on different things. I think men, we're, we're sort of very task-oriented, we're busy chasing the deal, we're after the outcome, where when I look at so many young professionals in our industry, and you know, I think Australian Insurance Broker of the last year, Lisa from, from, from Clear, who's a, is a really good example of this, women are more interested in listening to the story where the person has come from, what they're doing, why they're doing it. They, they, in, in my experience, they take the time to understand the customer just a little bit better. And it's because I think they've got different motivations. Um, the deal is still important and the thrill of the chase and, and that, that gets us all out of bed every day and, and, and striving. But if we purely focus on that, on that, we forget about what it is that the customer actually wants and what they actually expect from us and what they're looking to gain. And, so many, and, and I look at, and again, I'm so inspired so by so many young women in our industry who are not frightened to ask those questions of customers and say, what are you looking for from me? What are you hoping to achieve? How are you looking to protect your business? These are the things that I can do, but what are you looking to do? Where I, I, I find that's not always the case uh, with young men who are into the underwriter, cracking the big deal, doing the big thing, very tasked as in process oriented. We do this, 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 and this. And if we're not careful, we forget there's a customer there. And certainly the two young ladies that I've got in, in our business have picked a number of rather sizable size corporate accounts. And when we've gone back and we've met with the client, we've taken this back through the process, they've said, well, actually, they were the only people who actually came and sat down with us and asked us about what we wanted 
and what we wanted to achieve and what we were looking for. Um, that's just been my personal experience. And we don't, there's not enough, there's not enough young women in our profession and certainly in the broking space. And there's not enough, and that I think we're lacking balance. We're definitely lacking balance. Um, I said, I'm very fortunate. I've, I've got two here and they bring a totally different perspective to some conversations and a different point of view. And it's all important as part of the conversation. Uh, so I think we've got to do everything we can to encourage as many young women in the industry as we can. Um, it's been such a male dominated industry for so long. Um, the broking industry in general will, will, I believe, will improve greatly if we can attract that really good young talent in, into the industry. Yeah. No, I think that's great, great lessons for, for us all. Uh, Dale, I'm not surprised in the slightest to say that you've, you've been a brilliant guest. Um, thank you very much for your time. Oh, if pleasure. Do want, if people do want to reach out to you on the back Absolutely. of this, um, how can they get in touch? Uh, my email, so my personal email address is dale, D-A-L-E, at abc2c.com.au. Um, I'd love to hear from anybody. If anybody's looking for any help or assistance, yes, please, by all means, reach out. Um and if you go onto the Ausbroker website, um, it's um, abc2c.com.au, uh, you'll you'll be able to get my personal telephone number off there as well. Uh, and I'm happy I'm happy to chat to anybody at all. As I said, my my focus now is about putting back to the industry because I've just been I, I I've, so much has been gifted to me and I've been so fortunate that my focus now from now to sort of the next 10, 15 years of my career is to give back to people. Yeah, I think that's a, a fantastic message. And, and Dale, it's, it's been a terrific chat. Um, to everybody listening, have a fantastic week ahead. And we will talk to you next time on IB Talk. Thank you, Paul. Thank you for listening to IB Talk. For the latest episodes, be sure to follow us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts.